As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. From the macabre minds of Laughing Devil Production comes another story from the Nightshade Diary. You know what that means. Check under the bed and make sure no one or nothing is there. Is the closet door securely shut? Then leave your disbelief behind, amp up your imagination, and hang on tight for another ride into terror and mystery. And like all good horror stories, just imagine it's a dark and stormy night. And remember, screaming like a little girl is permitted. The Strange Adventures of a Private Secretary in New York by Algernon Blackwood 1. It was never quite clear to me how Jim Shorthouse managed to get his private secretaryship, but once he got it, he kept it, and for some years he led a steady life and put money in the savings bank. One morning his employer sent for him into the study, and it was evident to the secretary's trained senses that there was something unusual in the air. Mr. Shorthouse, he began somewhat nervously, I have never yet had the opportunity of observing whether or not you are possessed of personal courage. Shorthouse gasped, but he said nothing. He was growing accustomed to the eccentricities of his chief. Shorthouse was a Kentish man. Sidebotham was raised in Chicago, New York, was the present place of residence. But, the other continued, with a puff at his very black cigar, I must consider myself a poor judge of human nature and future, if it is not one of your strongest qualities. The private secretary made a foolish little bow in modest appreciation of so uncertain a compliment, 
Mr. Jonas B. Sidebotham watched him narrowly, as the novelists say before he continued his remarks. I have no doubt that you are a plucky fellow and... He hesitated and puffed at his cigar as if his life depended upon it keeping a light. I don't think I'm afraid of anything in particular, sir, except women, interposed the young man, feeling that it was time for him to make an observation of some sort, but still quite in the dark as to his chief's purpose. Hmm, he granted. Well, there are no women in this case so far as I know, but there may be other things that, that hurt more. Wants a special service of some kind, evidently, was the secretary's reflection. Personal violence? He asked aloud. Possibly? In fact, probably. The man continued to puff on the cigar. Shorthouse smelt an increase of salary in the air. It had a stimulating effect. I've had some experience of that article, sir, he said shortly, but I'm ready to undertake anything in reason. I can't say how much reason or unreason there may prove to be in this particular case. It all depends. Mr. Sidebotham got up and locked the door of his study and drew down the blinds of both windows. Then he took a bunch of keys from his pocket and opened a black tin box. He ferreted about among blue and white papers for a few seconds, enveloping himself as he did so in a cloud of blue tobacco smoke. I feel like a detective already, Shorthouse laughed. Speak low, please, returned the other, glancing around the room. We must observe the utmost secrecy. Perhaps you'd be kind enough to close the registers? He went on in a still lower voice. Open registers have betrayed conversations before now. Shorthouse began to enter into the spirit of the thing. He tiptoed across the floor and shut the two iron gratings in the wall, that in American houses supply hot air and are termed registers. Mr. Sidebotham had meanwhile found the paper he was looking for. He held it in front of him and tapped it once or twice with the back of his right hand, as if it were a stage letter and himself the villain of the melodrama. This is a letter from Joel Garvey, my old partner, he said at length. You have heard me speak of him? The other bowed. He knew that many years before Garvey and Sidebotham had been well known in the Chicago financial world. He knew that the amazing rapidity with which they accumulated a fortune had only been surpassed by the amazing rapidity with which they had immediately afterwards disappeared into space. He was further aware his position afforded facilities, that each partner was still to some extent in the other's power, and that each wished most devoutly that the other would die. The sins of his employer's early years did not concern him, however. The man was kind and just, if eccentric, and Shorthouse, being in New York, did not probe to discover more particularly the sources whence his salary was so regularly paid. Moreover, the two men had grown to like each other, and there was a genuine feeling of trust and respect between them. "'I hope it's a pleasant communication, sir,' he said in a low voice. "'Quite the reverse.' returned the other, fingering the paper nervously, as he stood in front of the fire. Blackmail, I suppose? Precisely, Mr. Sidebotham's cigar was not burning well. He struck a match and applied it to the uneven edge, and presently his voice spoke through clouds of wreathing smoke. 
There are valuable papers in my possession bearing his signature. I cannot inform you of their nature, but they are extremely valuable to me. They belong, as a matter of fact, to Garvey as much as to me. Only I've got them. I see. Garvey writes that he wants to have his signature removed, wants to cut it out with his own hand. He gives reasons which incline me to consider his request. And you would like me to take him the papers and see that he does it? And bring them back again with you, he whispered, screwing up his eyes into a shrewd grimace. And bring them back again with me, repeated the secretary. I understand perfectly. Shorthouse knew from unfortunate experience more than a little of the horrors of blackmail. The pressure Garvey was bringing to bear upon his old enemy must be exceedingly strong. That was quite clear. At the same time, the commission that was being entrusted to him seemed somewhat quixotic in its nature. He had already enjoyed more than one experience of his employer's eccentricity, and he now caught himself wondering whether this same eccentricity did not sometimes go further than eccentricity. I cannot read the letter to you, Mr. Sidebotham was explaining, but I shall give it into your hands. It will prove that you are my, uh, my accredited representative. I shall also ask you not to read the package of papers. The signature in question you will find, of course, on the last page, on the bottom. There was a pause of several minutes during which the end of the cigar glowed eloquently. Circumstances compel me, he went on at length, almost in a whisper, or I should never do this. But you understand, of course, the thing is a ruse. Cutting out the signature is a mere pretense. It is nothing. What Garvey wants are the papers themselves. The confidence reposed in the private secretary was not misplaced. Shorthouse was as faithful to Mr. Sidebotham as a man ought to be to the wife that loves him. The commission itself seemed very simple. Garvey lived in solitude in the remote part of Long Island. Shorthouse was to take the papers to him, witness the cutting out of the signature, and to be specifically on his guard against any attempt, forcible or otherwise, to gain possession of them. It seemed to him a somewhat ludicrous adventure, but he did not know all the facts and perhaps was not the best judge. The two men talked in low voices for another hour, at the end of which Mr. Sidebotham drew up the blinds, opened the registers, and unlocked the door. Shorthouse rose to go. His pockets were stuffed with papers and his head with instructions. But when he reached the door, he hesitated and turned. Well, said his chief. Shorthouse looked him straight in the eye and said nothing. The personal violence, I suppose, said the other. Shorthouse bowed. I have not seen Garvey for twenty years, he said. All I can tell you is that I believe him to be occasionally of unsound mind. I have heard strange rumors. He lives alone and in his lucid interval studies chemistry. It was always a hobby of his. But the chances are twenty to one against his attempting violence. I only wish to warn you, in case, I mean, so that you may be on the watch. He handed his secretary a Smith & Wesson revolver as he spoke. Shorthouse slipped it into his hip pocket and went out of the room. A drizzling cold rain was falling on fields covered with half-melted snow when Shorthouse stood late in the afternoon on the platform of the lonely little Long Island station
and watched the train he had just left vanish into the distance. It was a bleak country that Joel Garvey Esquire, formerly of Chicago, had chosen for his residence, and on this particular afternoon it presented a more than usually dismal appearance. An expanse of flat fields covered with dirty snow stretched away on all sides till the sky dropped down to meet them. Only occasional farm buildings broke the monotony and the road wound along muddy lanes and beneath dripping trees swathed in the cold raw fog that swept in like the pall of the dead from the sea. It was six miles from the station to Garvey's house and the driver of the rickety buggy short house had found at the station was not communicative. Between the dreary landscape and the drearier driver he fell back upon his own thoughts, which, but for the spice of adventure that was promised, would themselves have been even drearier than either. He made up his mind that he would waste no time over the transaction. The moment the signature was cut out, he would pack up and be off. The last train back to Brooklyn was 7.15, and he would have to walk the six miles of mud and snow, for the driver of the buggy had refused point blank to wait for him. For purposes of safety, Shorthouse had done what he flattered himself was rather a clever thing. He had made up a second packet of papers, identical in outside appearance with the first. The inscription, the blue envelope, the red elastic band, and even a blot in the lower left-hand corner had been exactly reproduced. Inside, of course, were only sheets of blank paper. It was his intention to change the packets and to let Garvey see him put the sham one into the bag. In case of violence, the bag would be the point of attack, and he intended to lock it and throw away the key. Before it could be forced open and the deception discovered, there would be time to increase his chance of escape with the real packet. It was five o'clock when the silent Yehu pulled up in front of a half-broken gate and pointed with his whip to a house that stood in its own grounds among trees and was just visible in the gathering gloom. Shorthouse told him to drive up to the front door, but the man refused. I ain't running no risks, he said. I've got a family. This cryptic remark was not encouraging, but Shorthouse did not pause to decipher it. He paid the man and then pushed open the rickety old gate swinging on a single hinge and proceeded to walk up the drive that lay dark between close-standing trees. The house soon came into full view. It was tall and square and had once evidently been white, but now the walls were covered with dirty patches and there were wide yellow streaks where the plaster had fallen away. The window stared black and uncompromising into the night. The garden was overgrown with weeds and long grass, standing up in ugly patches beneath their burden of wet snow. Complete silence reigned over all. There was not a sign of life, not even a dog barked. Only in the distance the wheels of the retreating carriage could be heard growing fainter and fainter. As he stood in the porch between pillars of rotting wood, listening to the rain dripping from the roof into the puddles of slushy snow, he was conscious of a sensation of utter desertion and loneliness, such as he had never before experienced. The forbidding aspect of the house had the immediate effect of lowering his spirits. It might well have been the abode of monsters or demons in a child's wonder tale, creatures that only dared to come out under cover of darkness. He groped for the bell handle or knocker, and finding neither, he raised his stick and beat a loud tattoo on the door. The sound echoed away in an empty space on the other side, and the wind moaned past him between the pillars 
as if startled at his audacity. But there was no sound of approaching footsteps, and no one came to open the door. Again he beat a tattoo louder and longer than the first one, and having done so, waited with his back to the house and stared across the unkempt garden into the fast-gathering shadows. Then he turned suddenly and saw that the door was standing ajar. It had been quietly opened and a pair of eyes were peering at him round the edge. There was no light in the hall beyond, and he could only just make out the shape of a dim human face. Does Mr. Garvey live here? he asked in a firm voice. Who are you? came in a man's tones. I'm Mr. Sidebotham's private secretary. I wish to see Mr. Garvey on important business. Are you expected? I suppose so, he said impatiently, thrusting a card through the opening. Please take my name to him at once and say I come from Mr. Sidebotham on the matter Mr. Garvey wrote about. The man took the card and the face vanished into the darkness, leaving Shorthouse standing in the cold porch with mingled feelings of impatience and dismay. The door, he now noticed for the first time, was on a chain and could not open more than a few inches, but it was the manner of his reception that caused uneasy reflections to stir within him, reflections that continued for some minutes before they were interrupted by the sound of approaching footsteps and the flicker of a light in the hall. The next instant the chain fell with a rattle, and gripping his bag tightly, he walked into a large, ill-smelling hall of which he could only just see the ceiling. There was no light but the niggering taper held by the man, and by its uncertain glimmer, Shorthouse turned to examine him. He saw an undersized man of middle age, with brilliant shifting eyes, and a curling black beard. His shoulders were bent, and as he watched him replace the chain, he saw that he wore a peculiar black gown like a priest's cassock reaching to the feet. It was altogether a lubricous figure of a man, sinister and funereal, yet it seemed in perfect harmony with the general character of its surroundings. The hall was devoid of furniture of any kind, and against the dingy wall stood rows of old picture frames, empty and disordered, and odd-looking bits of woodwork that appeared doubly fantastic as their shadows danced queerly over the floor in the shifting light. "'If you'll come this way, Mr. Garvey, we'll see you presently,' said the old man gruffly crossing the floor and shielding the taper with a bony hand. He never once raised his eyes above the level of the visitor's waistcoat, and to Shorthouse he somehow suggested a figure from the dead rather than a man of flesh and blood. The hall smelt decidedly ill. All the more surprising then was the scene that met his eyes when the old man opened the door at the further end, and he entered into a room brilliantly lit with swinging lamps and furnished with a degree of taste and comfort that amounted to luxury. The walls were lined with handsomely bound books and armchairs were arranged round a large mahogany desk in the middle of the room. A bright fire burned in the grate and neatly framed photographs of men and women stood on the mantelpiece on either side of an elaborately carved clock. French windows that opened like doors were partially concealed by warm red curtains and on a sideboard against the wall stood decanters and glasses with several boxes of cigars piled on top of one another. There was a pleasant odor of tobacco about the room. Indeed, it was in such glowing contrast to the chilly poverty of the hall that Shorthouse already was conscious of a distinct rise in the thermometer of his spirits. 
Then he turned and saw the old man standing in the doorway with his eyes fixed upon him, somewhere about the middle button of his waistcoat. He presented a strangely repulsive appearance that somehow could not be attributed to any particular detail, and the secretary associated him in his mind with a monstrous blackbird of prey more than anything else. My time is short, he said abruptly. I hope Mr. Garvey will not keep me waiting. A strange flicker of a smile appeared on the old man's ugly face and vanished as quickly as it came. He made a sort of deprecating bow by way of reply. Then he blew out the taper and went out, closing the door noiselessly behind him. Shorthouse was alone. He felt relieved. There was As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. There was an air of obsequious insolence about the old man that was very offensive. He began to take note of his surroundings. He was evidently in the library of the house where the walls were covered with books almost up to the ceiling. There was no room for pictures. Nothing but the shining backs of well-bound volumes looked down upon him. Four brilliant lights hung from the ceiling and a reading lamp with a polished reflector stood among disordered masses of papers on the desk. The lamp was not lit, but when Shorthouse put his hand upon it, he found it was warm. The room had evidently only just been vacated. Apart from the testimony of the lamp, however, he had already felt, without being able to give a reason for it, that the room had been occupied a few moments before he entered. The atmosphere over the desk seemed to retain the disturbing influence of a human being, and influence, moreover, so recent that he felt as if the cause of it were still in his immediate neighborhood. It was difficult to realize that he was quite alone in the room and that somebody was not in hiding. The finer counterparts of his senses warned him to act as if he were being observed. He was dimly conscious of a desire to fidget and look around, to keep his eyes in every part of the room at once, and to conduct himself generally as if he were the careful object of human observation. How far he recognized the cause of these sensations it is impossible to say, but they were sufficiently marked to prevent his carrying out a strong inclination to get up and make a search of the room. He sat quite still, staring alternately at the backs of the books and at the red curtains, wondering all the time 
if he was really being watched or if it was only the imagination playing tricks with him. A full quarter of an hour passed, and then twenty rows of volume suddenly shifted out towards him, and he saw that a door had opened in the wall opposite. The books were only sham backs after all, and when they moved back again with the sliding door, Shorthouse saw the figure of Joel Garvey standing before him. Surprise almost took his breath away. He had expected to see an unpleasant, even a vicious apparition with the mark of the beast unmistakably upon its face, but he was wholly unprepared for the elderly, tall, fine-looking man who stood in front of him, well-groomed, refined, vigorous, with a lofty forehead, clear gray eyes, and a hooked nose, dominating a clean-shaven mouth and chin of considerable character, a distinguished-looking man altogether. "'I'm afraid I've kept you waiting, Mr. Shorthouse,' he said in a pleasant voice, but with no trace of a smile in the mouth or eyes. But the fact is, you know, I have a mania for chemistry, and just when you were announced, I was at the most critical moment of a problem and was really compelled to bring it to a conclusion. Shorthouse had risen to meet him, but the other motioned him to resume his seat. It was borne in upon him irresistibly that Mr. Joel Garvey, for reasons best known to himself, was deliberately lying, and he could not help wondering at the necessity for such an elaborate misrepresentation. He took off his overcoat and sat down. I've no doubt, too, that the door startled you, Garvey went on, evidently reading something of his guest's feeling in his face. You probably had not suspected it. It leads into my little laboratory. Chemistry is an absorbing study to me, and I spend most of my time there. Mr. Garvey moved up to the armchair on the opposite side of the fireplace and sat down. Shorthouse made appropriate answers to these remarks, but his mind was really engaged in taking stock of Mr. Sidebotham's old-time partner. So far there was no sign of mental irregularity, and there was certainly nothing about him to suggest violent wrongdoing or coarseness of living. On the whole, Mr. Sidebotham's secretary was most pleasantly surprised, and wishing to conclude his business as speedily as possible, he made a motion towards the bag for the purpose of opening it when his companion interrupted him quickly. "'You are Mr. Sidebotham's private secretary, are you not?' he asked. Shorthouse replied that he was. Mr. Sidebotham, he went on to explain, has entrusted me with the papers in the case, and I have the honor to return to you your letter of a week ago. He handed the letter to Garvey, who took it without a word and deliberately placed it in the fire. He was not aware that the secretary was ignorant of its contents, yet his face betrayed no signs of feeling. Shorthouse noticed, however, that his eyes never left the fire until the last morsel had been consumed. Then he looked up and said, you are familiar, then, with the facts of this most peculiar case? Shorthouse saw no reason to confess his ignorance. I have all the papers, Mr. Garvey, he replied, taking them out of the bag, and I should be very glad if we could transact our business as speedily as possible. If you will cut out your signature, I... One moment, please, interrupted the other. I must, before we proceed further, consult some papers in my laboratory. If you will allow me to leave you alone a few minutes... For this purpose, we can conclude the whole matter in a very short time. Shorthouse did not approve of this further delay, but he had no option other than to agree, and when Garvey had left the room by the private door, he sat and waited, with the papers in his hand. The minutes went by, and the other did not return. To pass the time, he thought of taking the false packet from his coat to see that the papers were in order, and the move was indeed almost completed when something... 
He never knew what warned him to desist. The feeling came again over him that he was being watched, and he leaned back in his chair with the bag on his knees and waited with considerable impatience for the other's return. For more than twenty minutes he waited, and when at length the door opened and Garvey appeared with profuse apologies for the delay, he saw by the clock that only a few minutes still remained of the time he had allowed himself to catch the last train. "'Now I am completely at your service,' he said pleasantly. "'You must, of course, know, Mr. Shorthouse, "'that one can not be too careful in matters of this kind, "'especially,' he went on, speaking very slowly and impressively, "'in dealing with a man like my former partner, "'whose mind, as you doubtless may have discovered, "'is at times very sadly affected.' "'Shorthouse made no reply to this. "'He felt that the other was watching him as a cat watches a mouse. "'It is almost a wonder to me,' Garvey added, that he is still at large, unless he has greatly improved, and can hardly be safe for those who are closely associated with him. The other began to feel uncomfortable. Either this was the other side of the story, or it was the first signs of mental irresponsibility. All business matters of importance require the utmost care in my opinion, Mr. Garvey, he said at length, cautiously. Ah, then, as I thought, you have had a great deal to put up with from him, Garvey said, with his eyes fixed on his companion's face, and no doubt he is still a bitter against me as he was years ago when the disease first showed itself. Although this last remark was a deliberate question and the questioner was waiting with fixed eyes for an answer, Shorthouse elected to take no notice of it. Without a word, he pulled the elastic band from the blue envelope with a snap and plainly showed his desire to conclude the business as soon as possible. The tendency on the other's part to delay did not suit him at all. But never personal violence, I trust, Mr. Shorthouse, he added. Never. I'm glad to hear it, Garvey said in a sympathetic voice. Very glad to hear it. And now, he went on, if you are ready, we can transact this little matter of business before dinner. It will only take a moment. He drew a chair up to the desk and sat down, taking a pair of scissors from a drawer. His companion approached to the papers in his hand unfolding them as he came. Garvey at once took them from him, and after turning over a few pages, he stopped and cut out a piece of writing at the bottom of the last sheet but one. Holding it up to him, Shorthouse read the words, Joel Garvey in faded ink. There, that's my signature, he said, and I've cut it out. It must be nearly twenty years since I wrote it, and now I'm going to burn it. He went to the fire and stooped over to burn a little slip of paper, and while he watched it being consumed, Shorthouse put the real papers in his pocket and slipped the imitation ones into the bag. Garvey turned just in time to see this latter movement. I'm putting the papers back, Shorthouse said quietly. You've done with them, I think. Certainly, he replied. Completely deceived, he saw the blue envelope disappear into the black bag and watched Shorthouse turn the key. They no longer have the slightest interest for me. As he spoke, he moved over to the sideboard, and pouring himself out a small glass of whiskey, asked his visitor if he might do the same for him. But the visitor declined, and was already putting on his overcoat, when Garvey turned with genuine surprise on his face. "'You surely are not going back to New York tonight, Mr. Shorthouse,' he said in a voice of astonishment. "'I've just time to catch the 7.15 if I'm quick.' But I never heard of such a thing, Garvey said. Of course, I took it for granted that you would stay the night. It's kind of you, says Shorthouse, but really I must return tonight. I never expected to stay. The two men stood facing each other. 
Garvey pulled out his watch. I'm exceedingly sorry, he said, but upon my word, I took it for granted you would stay. I ought to have said so long ago. I'm such a lonely fellow and so little accustomed to visitors that I fear I forgot my manners altogether. But in any case, Mr. Shorthouse, you cannot catch the 7.15, for it's already six o'clock, and that's the last train tonight. Garvey spoke very quickly, almost eagerly, but his voice sounded genuine. There's time if I walk quickly, said the young man with decision, moving towards the door. He glanced at his watch as he went. Hitherto he had gone by the clock on the mantelpiece. To his dismay he saw that it was, as his host had said, long after six. The clock was half an hour slow, and he realized at once that it was no longer possible to catch the train. Had the hands of the clock been moved back intentionally? Had he been purposely detained? Unpleasant thoughts flashed into his brain and made him hesitate before taking the next step. His employer's warning rang in his ears. The alternative was six miles along a lonely road in the dark, or night under Garvey's roof. The former seemed a direct invitation to the catastrophe, if catastrophe there was planned to be. The latter, well, the choice was certainly small. One thing, however, he realized was plain. He must show neither fear nor hesitancy. My watch must have gained, he observed quietly, turning the hands back without looking up. It seems I have certainly missed a train and shall be obliged to throw myself upon your hospitality. But believe me, I had no intention of putting you out to any such extent. I'm delighted, the other man said. Defer to the judgment of an older man and make yourself comfortable for the night. There's a bitter storm outside and you don't put me out at all. On the contrary, it's a great pleasure. I have so little contact with the outside world that it's really a godsend to have you. The man's face changed as he spoke. His manner was cordial and sincere. Shorthouse began to feel ashamed of his doubts and to read between the lines of his employer's warning. He took off his coat and the two men moved to the armchairs beside the fire. You see, Garvey went on in a lowered voice, I understand your hesitancy perfectly. I didn't know Sidebotham all those years without knowing a good deal about him, perhaps more than you do. I've no doubt now. He filled your mind with all sorts of nonsense about me. Probably told you that I was the greatest villain unhung, right? And all that sort of thing. Poor fellow. He was a fine sort before his mind became unhinged. One of his fancies used to be that everybody else was insane or just about to become insane. Is he still as bad as that? Few men, replied Shorthouse, with a manner of making a great confidence, but entirely refusing to be drawn, go through his experiences and reach his age without entertaining delusions of one kind or another. Perfectly true, said Garvey. Your observation is evidently keen. Very keen indeed, Shorthouse replied, taking his cue neatly, but of course there are some things. And here he looked cautiously over his shoulder. There are some things one cannot talk about too circumspectly. I understand perfectly and respect your reserve. There was a little more conversation then Garvey got up and excused himself on the plea of superintending the preparation of the bedroom. It's quite an event to have a visitor in the house and I want to make it as comfortable as possible, he said. Marks will do better for a little supervision and he added with a laugh as he stood in the doorway. I want you to carry back a good account to Sidebotham. 2. The tall form disappeared and the door was shut. The conversation of the past few minutes had come somewhat as a revelation to the secretary. Garvey seemed in full possession 
of normal instincts. There was no doubt as to the sincerity of his manner and intentions. The suspicions of the first hour began to vanish like mist before the sun. Side Botham's portentous warnings and the mystery with which he surrounded the whole episode had been allowed to unduly influence his mind. The loneliness of the situation, the bleak nature of the surroundings, had helped to complete the illusion. He began to be ashamed of his suspicions, and a change commenced gradually to be wrought in his thoughts. Anyhow, a dinner and a bed were preferable to six miles in the dark, no dinner and a cold train into the bargain. Garvey returned presently. We'll do the best we can for you, he said, dropping into the deep armchair on the other side of the fire. Marks is a good servant if you watch him all the time, especially if you want things done properly. He can be tricky, and sometimes he works for his own interest. But Marks might be worse, I'll admit. He's been with me for nearly 20 years, cook, valet, housemaid, and butler all in one. In the old days, you know, he was a clerk in our office in Chicago. Garvey rattled on, and Shorthouse listened with occasional remarks thrown in. The former seemed pleased to have somebody to talk to, and the sound of his own voice was evidently sweet music in his ears. After a few minutes, he crossed over to the sideboard and again took off the decanter of whiskey, holding it to the light. "'You will join me this time,' he said, pleasantly pouring out two glasses. "'It will give us an appetite for dinner.' and this time Shorthouse did not refuse. The liquor was mellow and soft, and the men took two glasses apiece. Excellent, remarked the secretary. Glad you appreciate it, said the host, smacking his lips. It's very old whiskey, and I rarely touch it when I'm alone, but this, he added, is a special occasion, isn't it? Shorthouse was in the act of putting his glass down when something drew his eyes suddenly to the other's face. A strange note in the man's voice caught his attention and communicated alarm to his nerves. A new light shone in Garvey's eyes, and there flitted momentarily across the strong features the shadow of something that set the secretary's nerves tingling. A mist spread before his eyes, and the unaccountable belief rose strong in him that he was staring into the visage of an untamed animal. Close to his heart there was something that was wild, fierce, savage. An involuntary shiver ran over him, and seemed to dispel the strange fancy as suddenly as it had come. He met the other's eyes with a smile, the counterpart of which in his heart was vivid horror. It is a special occasion, he said, as naturally as possible, and allow me to add very special whiskey. Garvey appeared delighted. He was in the middle of a devious tale describing how the whiskey came originally into possession when the door opened behind them in a grating voice announced that dinner was ready. They followed the cassock form of Marks across the dirty hall, lit only by the shaft of light that followed them from the library door, and entered a small room where a single lamp stood upon a table laid for dinner. The walls were destitute of pictures, and the windows had Venetian blinds without curtains. There was no fire in the grate, and when the men sat down facing each other, Shorthouse noticed that, while his own cover was laid, with his due proportion of glasses and cutlery. His companion had nothing before him but a soup plate, without fork, knife, or spoon beside it. I don't know what there is to offer you, he said, but I'm sure Marks has done the best he can at such short notice. I only eat one course for dinner, but pray take your time and enjoy your food. 
Marks presently set a plate of soup before the guest, yet so loathsome was the immediate presence of the old man that the spoonsful disappeared somewhat slowly. Garvey sat and watched them. Shorthouse said the soup was delicious and bravely swallowed another mouthful. In reality, his thoughts were centered upon his companion, whose manners were giving evidence of a gradual and curious change. There was a decided difference in his demeanor, a difference that the secretary felt at first rather than saw. Garvey's quiet self-possession was giving way to a degree of suppressed excitement that seemed so far inexplicable. His movements became quick and nervous, his eyes shifting and strangely brilliant, and his voice, when he spoke, betrayed an occasional deep tremor. Something unwanted was stirring within him, and evidently demanding, every moment, more vigorous manifestation as the meal proceeded. Intuitively, Shorthouse was afraid of this growing excitement, and while negotiating some uncommonly tough pork chops, he tried to lead the conversation on to the subject of chemistry, of which in his Oxford days he had been an enthusiastic student. His companion, however, would none of it. It seemed to have lost interest for him, and he would barely condescend to respond. When Marx presently returned with a plate of steaming eggs and bacon, the subject dropped of its own accord. In an As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Adequate dinner dish, Garvey said as soon as the man was gone, but better than nothing, I hope. Shorthouse remarked that he was exceedingly fond of bacon and eggs, and looking up with the last word, saw that Garvey's face was twitching convulsively and that he was almost wiggling in his chair. He quieted down, however, under the secretary's gaze and observed, though evidently with an effort, Very good of you to say so. Wish I could join you, only I never eat such stuff. I only take one course for dinner. Shorthouse began to feel some curiosity as to what the nature of this one course might be. But he made no further remark and contented himself with noting mentally that his companion's excitement seemed to be rapidly growing beyond his control. There was something uncanny about it, and he began to wish he had chosen the alternative of the walk to the station. I'm glad to see you never speak when Marx is in the room, said Garvey presently. 
I'm sure it's better not. Don't you think so? He appeared to wait eagerly for the answer. Undoubtedly, said the puzzled secretary. Yes, the other went on quickly. He's an excellent man, but he has one drawback, a really horrid one. You may, but no. You could hardly have noticed it yet. Not drink, I trust, says Shorthouse. Rather than that a great deal, Garvey replied, evidently expecting the other to draw him out. Shorthouse was in no mood to hear anything horrible, and he declined to step into the trap. The best of servants have their faults, he said coldly. I'll tell you what it is if you like. Garvey went on, still speaking very low and leaning forward over the table so that his face came close to the flame of the lamp. Only we must speak quietly in case he's listening. I'll tell you what it is if you think you won't be frightened. Nothing frightens me, he laughed. Garvey must understand that at all events. Nothing can frighten me, he repeated. I'm glad of that, for it frightens me a good deal sometimes. Shorthouse feigned indifference, yet he was aware that his heart was beating a little quicker, and that there was a sensation of chilliness in his back. He waited in silence for what was to come. He has a horrible predilection for vacuums, Garvey went on presently in a still lower voice, and thrusting his face further towards the lamp. Vacuums? exclaimed the secretary in spite of himself. What in the world do you mean? What I say, of course. He's always tumbling into them, so that I can't find him or get at him. He hides there for hours at a time, and for the life of me, I can't make out what he does there. Shorthouse stared his companion straight in the eyes. What in the name of heaven was he talking about? Do you suppose he goes there for a change of air or, or to escape? He went on in a louder voice. Shorthouse could have laughed outright but for the expression of the other's face. I should not think there was much air of any sort of in a vacuum, he said quietly. That's exactly what I feel, continued Garvey, with ever-growing excitement. That's the horrid part of it. How the devil does he live there? You see, have you ever followed him there? Interrupted the secretary. The other leaned back in his chair and drew a deep sigh. Never. It's impossible. You see, I can't follow him. There's not room for two. A vacuum only holds one comfortably. Marx knows that. He's out of my reach altogether once he's fairly inside. He knows the best side of a bargain. That is a drawback to a servant, of course. Shorthouse spoke slowly with his eyes on his plate. A drawback, interrupted the other with an ugly chuckle. I call it a draw-in. That's what I call it. A draw-in does seem a more accurate term, assented Shorthouse, but, he went on, I thought that nature abhorred a vacuum. She used to when I was at school, but perhaps it's so long ago. He hesitated and looked up. Something in Garvey's face, something he had felt before, he even looked up, stopped his tongue and froze the words in his throat. His lips refused to move and became suddenly dry. Again the mist rose before his eyes and the appalling shadow dropped its veil over the face before him. Garvey's features began to burn and glow. Then they seemed to coarsen and somehow slip confusedly together. He stared for a second. It seemed only for a second into the visage of a ferocious and abominable animal, and then, as suddenly as it had come, 
The filthy shadow of the beast passed off. The mist melted out, and with a mighty effort over his nerves, he forced himself to finish his sentence. You see it so long since I've given attention to such things, he stammered. His heart was beating rapidly, and a feeling of oppression was gathering over it. It's my peculiar and special study. On the other hand, Garvey resumed, I've not spent all these years in my laboratory to no purpose, I can assure you. Nature, I know for a fact, he added with a natural warmth, does not abhor a vacuum. On the contrary, she's uncommonly fond of them, much too fond, it seems, for the comfort of my little household. If there was fewer vacuums and more abhorrence, we should get on better, a damn sight better, in my opinion. Your special knowledge, no doubt, enables you to speak with authority, Shorthouse said, curiosity and alarm, warring with other mixed feelings in his mind. But how can a man tumble into a vacuum? You may well ask, that's just it. How can he? It's preposterous, and I can't make it out at all. Marx knows, but he won't tell me. For my part, I have reason to believe. He stopped and listened. Hush, here he comes, he added, rubbing his hands together, as if in glee and fidgeting in his chair. Steps were heard coming down the passage, and as they approached the door, Garvey seemed to give himself completely over to an excitement he could not control. His eyes were fixed on the door, and he began clutching the tablecloth with both hands. Again his face was screened by the loathsome shadow. It grew wild, wolfish, as through a mask that concealed and yet was thin enough to let through a suggestion of the beast crouching behind. There leaped into his countenance the strange look of the animal in the human, the expression of the werewolf, the monster. The change in all its loathsomeness came rapidly over his features, which began to lose their outline. The nose flattened, dropping with broad nostrils over thick lips. The face rounded, filled, and became squat. The eyes, which luckily for Shorthouse, no longer sought his own, glowed with a light of untamed appetite and bestial greed. The hands left the cloth and grasped the edge of the plate, and then clutched the cloth again. This is my course coming now, said Garvey in a deep guttural voice. He was shivering, his upper lip was partially lifted, and showed the teeth white and gleaming. A moment later the door opened and Marks hurried into the room and set a dish in front of his master. Garvey half rose to meet him, stretching out his hands and grinning horribly. With his mouth he made a sound like the snarl of an animal. The dish before him was steaming, but the slight vapor rising from it betrayed by its odor that it was not born of a fire of coals. It was the natural heat of flesh warmed by the fires of life, only just expelled. The moment the dish rested on the table, Garvey pushed away his own plate and drew the other up under his mouth. Then he seized the food in both hands and commenced to tear it with his teeth, grunting as he did so. Shorthouse closed his eyes with a feeling of nausea. When he looked up again, the lips and jaws of the man opposite were stained with crimson. The whole man was transformed. A feasting tiger, starved and ravenous, but without a tiger's grace. This was what he watched for several minutes, transfixed with horror and disgust. Marx had already taken his departure, knowing evidently what was not good for the eyes to look upon, and Shorthouse knew at last that he was sitting face to face with a madman. The ghastly meal was finished in an incredibly short time, 
and nothing was left but a tiny pool of red liquid rapidly hardening. Garvey leaned back heavily in his chair and sighed. His smeared face, withdrawn now from the glare of the lamp, began to assume its normal appearance. Presently he looked up at his guest and said in his natural voice, I hope you've had enough to eat. You wouldn't care for this, you know, with a downward glance. Shorthouse met his eyes with an inward loathing. It was impossible not to show some of the repugnance he felt. In the other's face, however, he thought he saw a subdued, cowed expression, but he found nothing to say. Marks will be in presently, Garvey went on. He's either listening or in a vacuum. Does he choose any particular time for his visits? The secretary managed to ask. He generally goes after dinner. Just about this time, in fact. But he's not gone yet, he added, shrugging his shoulders. For I think I hear him coming. Shorthouse wondered whether vacuum was possibly synonymous with wine cellar, but gave no expression to his thoughts. With chills of horror still running up and down his back, he saw Marks come in with a basin and towel, while Garvey thrust up his face just as an animal puts up its muzzle to be rubbed. Now we'll have coffee in the library if you're ready, he said in the tone of a gentleman addressing his guest after a dinner party. Shorthouse picked up the bag which had lain all his time between his feet and walked through the door his host held open for him. Side by side they crossed the dark hall together and to his disgust, Garvey linked an arm in his and with his face so close to the secretary's ear that he felt the warm breath said in a thick voice. You're uncommonly careful with that bag, Mr. Shorthouse. It surely must contain something more than the bundle of papers. Nothing but the papers, he answered, feeling the hand burning upon his arm and wishing he were miles away from the house and its abominable occupants. Quite sure? asked the other with an odious and suggestive chuckle. Is there any meat in it? Fresh meat? Raw meat? The secretary felt somehow that at the least sign of fear the beast on his arm would leap upon him and tear him with his teeth. Nothing of the sort, he answered vigorously. It wouldn't hold enough to feed a cat. True, said Garvey with a vile sigh, while the other felt the hand upon his arm twitch up and down, as if feeling the flesh. True, it's too small to be of any real use. As you say, it wouldn't hold enough to feed a cat. Shorthouse was unable to suppress a cry. The muscles of his fingers too relaxed in spite of himself and let the black bag drop with a bang to the floor. Garvey instantly withdrew his arm and turned with a quick movement, but the secretary had regained his control as suddenly as he had lost it, and he met the maniac's eyes with a steady and aggressive glare. There, you see, it's quite light. It makes no appreciable noise when I drop it. He picked it up and let it fall again, as if he had dropped it for the first time purposely. The ruse was successful. Yes, you're right, Garvey said, still standing in the doorway and staring at him. At any rate, it wouldn't hold enough for two, he laughed, and as he closed the door, the horrid laughter echoed in the empty hall. They sat down by a blazing fire, and Shorthouse was glad to feel its warmth. Marks presently brought in coffee. A glass of the old whiskey and a good cigar helped to restore equilibrium. For some minutes, the men sat in silence, staring into the fire. Then, without looking up, Garvey said in a quiet voice, I suppose it was a shock to you to see me eat raw meat like that. I must apologize if it was unpleasant to you, but it's all I can eat, and it's the only meal I take in the 24 hours. 
best nourishment in the world, no doubt, though I should think it might be a trifle strong for some stomachs. He tried to lead the conversation away from so unpleasant a subject, and went on to talk rapidly of the values of different foods, of vegetarianism, and vegetarians and of men who had gone for long periods without any food at all. Garvey listened apparently without interest and had nothing to say. At the first pause, he jumped in eagerly. When the hunger is really great on me, he said, still gazing into the fire, I simply cannot control myself. I must have raw meat, the first I can get. Here he raised his shining eyes and Shorthouse felt his hair beginning to rise. It comes upon me so suddenly, I can never tell when to expect it. A year ago, the passion rose in me like a whirlwind and Marx was out and I couldn't get meat. I had to get something or I should have bitten myself. Just when it was getting unbearable, my dog ran out from underneath the sofa. It was a spaniel. Shorthouse responded with an effort. He hardly knew what he was saying, and his skin crawled as if a million ants were moving over it. There was a pause of several minutes. I've bitten marks all over. Garvey went on presently in his strange, quiet voice, and as if he were speaking of apples. But he's bitter. I doubt if the hunger could ever make me do it again. Probably that's what first drove him to take shelter in a vacuum. He chuckled hideously as he thought of this solution of his attendant's disappearances. Shorthouse seized the poker and poked the fire as if his life depended on it. But when the banging and clattering was over, Garvey continued his remarks with the same calmness. The next sentence, however, was never finished. The secretary had gotten upon his feet suddenly. I shall ask your permission to retire, he said in a determined voice. I am tired tonight. Will you be good enough to show me to my room? Garvey looked up at him with a curious, cringing expression, behind which there shone the gleam of cunning passion. Certainly, he said, rising from his chair. You've had a tiring journey. I ought to have thought of that before. He took the candle from the table and lit it, and the fingers that held the match trembled. We needn't trouble Marks, he explained that beast in his vacuum by this time. 3. They crossed the hall and began to ascend the carpetless wooden stairs. They were in the well of the house and the air cut like ice. Garvey, the flickering candle in his hand, throwing his face into strong outline, led the way across the first landing and opened a door near the mouth of a dark passage. A pleasant room greeted the visitor's eyes, and he rapidly took in its points while his host walked over and lit two candles that stood on a table at the foot of the bed. A fire burned brightly in the grate. There were two windows opening like doors in the wall opposite, and a high canopied bed occupied most of the space on the right. Paneling ran all around the room, reaching nearly to the ceiling, and gave a warm and cozy appearance to the whole, while the portraits that stood in alternate panels suggested somehow the atmosphere of an old country house in England. Shorthouse was agreeably surprised. I hope you'll find everything you need, Gary was saying at the doorway. If not, you have only to ring the bell by the fireplace. Marks won't hear it, of course, but it rings in my laboratory where I spend most of the night. Then, with a brief good night, he went out and shut the door after him. The instant he was gone, Mr. Sidebotham's private secretary did a peculiar thing. He planted himself in the middle of the room with his back to the door, and drawing the pistol swiftly from his hip pocket, leveled it across his left arm at the window. Standing motionless in this position for thirty seconds, 
He then suddenly swerved right around and faced in the other direction, pointing his pistol straight at the keyhole of the door. There followed immediately a sound of shuffling outside and of steps retreating across the landing. On his knees at the keyhole was the secretary's reflection, just as I thought, but he didn't expect to look down the barrel of a pistol, and it made him jump a little. As soon as the steps had gone downstairs and died away across the hall, Shorthouse went over and locked the door, stuffing a piece of crumpled paper into the second keyhole, which he saw immediately above the first. After that, he made a thorough search of the room. It hardly repaid the trouble, for he found nothing unusual. Yet he was glad he had made it. It relieved him to find no one was in hiding under the bed or in the deep oak cupboard, and he hoped sincerely it was not the cupboard in which the unfortunate spaniel had come to its vile death. The French windows he discovered opened onto a little balcony. It looked onto the front, and there was a drop of less than twenty feet to the ground below. The bed was high and wide, soft as feathers and covered with snowy sheets, very inviting to a tired man, and beside the blazing fire were a couple of deep armchairs. Altogether it was very pleasant and comfortable, but tired though he was, Shorthouse had no intention of going to bed. It was impossible to disregard the warning of his nerves. They had never failed him before, and when that sense of distressing horror lodged in his bones, he knew there was something in the wind and that a red flag was flying over the immediate future. Some delicate instrument in his being, more subtle than the senses, more accurate than mere presentiment, had seen the red flag and interpreted its meaning. Again, it seemed to him, as he sat in an armchair over the fire, that his movements were being carefully watched from somewhere, and that knowing what weapons might be used against him, he felt that his real safety lay in rigid control of his mind and feelings and a stout refusal to admit that he was in the least alarmed. The house was very still. As the night wore on, the wind dropped. Only occasional bursts. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. ...of sleet against the window reminded him that the elements were awake and uneasy. Once or twice the windows rattled and the rain hissed in the fire, but the roar of the wind in the chimney grew less and less and the lonely building was at last lapped in a great stillness. The coals clicked, selling themselves deeper in the grate, and the noise of the cinders dropping with a tiny report into the soft heap of accumulated ashes was the only sound that punctuated the silence. In proportion, as the power of sleep grew upon him, the dread of the situation lessened, but so imperceptibly, so gradually, and so insinuatingly,
that he scarcely realized the change. He thought he was as wide awake as to danger as ever. The successful exclusion of horrible mental pictures of what he had seen he attributed to his rigorous control, instead of to their true cause, the creeping over him of the soft influences of sleep. The faces in the coals were so soothing, the armchair was so comfortable, so sweet the breath that gently pressed upon his eyelids, so subtle the growth of the sensation of safety. He settled down deeper into the chair, and in another moment would have been asleep when the red flag began to shake violently to and fro, and he sat bolt upright as if he had been stabbed in the back. Someone was coming up the stairs. The boards creaked beneath a stealthy weight. Shorthouse sprang from the chair and crossed her room swiftly, taking up his position beside the door, but out of range of the keyhole. The two candles flared unevenly on the table at the foot of the bed. The steps were slow and cautious. It seemed thirty seconds between each one, but the person who was taking them was very close to the door. Already he had topped the stairs and was shuffling almost silently across the bit of landing. The secretary slipped his hand into his pistol pocket and drew back further against the wall, and hardly had he completed the movement when the sounds abruptly ceased and he knew that somebody was standing just outside the door and preparing for careful observation through the keyhole. He was in no sense a coward. In action he was never afraid. It was the waiting and wondering and the uncertainty that might have loosened his nerves a little, but somehow a wave of intense horror swept over him for a second as he thought of the bestial maniac and his attendant marks, and he would rather have faced a pack of wolves than have to do with either of these men. Something brushing gently against the door set his nerves tingling afresh and made him tighten his grasp on the pistol. The steel was cold and slippery in his moist fingers. What an awful noise it would make when he pulled the trigger. If the door were to open, how close he would be to the figure that came in. Yet he knew it was locked on the inside and could not possibly be opened. Again, something brushed against the panel beside him, and a second later the piece of crumpled paper fell from the keyhole to the floor, while the piece of thin wire that had accomplished this result showed its pointed for a moment in the room and was then swiftly withdrawn. Somebody was evidently peering now through the keyhole, and realizing this fact, the spirit of attack entered into the heart of the beleaguered man. Raising aloft his right hand, he brought it suddenly down with a resounding crash upon the panel of the door next to the keyhole, a crash that, to the crouching eavesdropper, must have seemed like a clap of thunder out of a clear sky. There was a gasp and a slight lurching against the door, and the midnight listener rose startled in alarm, for Shorthouse plainly heard the tread of feet across the landing and down the stairs till they were lost in the silence of the hall. Only this time it seemed to him there were four feet instead of two. Quickly stuffing the paper back into the keyhole, he was in the act of walking back to the fireplace when over his shoulder he caught sight of a white face pressed in outline against the outside of the window. It was blurred in the streams of sleet, but the white of the moving eyes was unmistakable. He turned instantly to meet it, but the face was withdrawn like a flash and darkness rushed in to fill the gap where it had appeared. Watched on both sides, he reflected, but he was not to be surprised into any sudden action, and quietly walking over to the fireplace, as if he had seen nothing unusual, he stirred the coals a moment and then strolled leisurely over to the window. 
steeling his nerves which quivered a moment in spite of his will. He opened the window and stepped out onto the balcony. The wind, which he thought had dropped, rushed past him into the room and extinguished one of the candles, while a volley of fine cold rain burst all over his face. At first he could see nothing, and the darkness came close up to his eyes like a wall. He went a little further onto the balcony and drew the window after him till it clashed. Then he stood and waited, but nothing touched him. No one seemed to be there. His eyes got accustomed to the blackness and he was able to make out the iron railing, the dark shapes of the trees beyond, and the faint light coming from the other window. Through this he peered into the room, walking the length of the balcony to do so. Of course he was standing in a shaft of light, and where was crouching in the darkness below could plainly see him below. That there should be anyone above did not occur to him, until just as he was preparing to go in again, he became aware that something was moving in the darkness over his head. He looked up, instinctively raising a protecting arm, and saw a long black line swinging against the dim wall of the house. The shutters of the window on the next floor, whence it depended, were thrown open and moving backwards and forwards in the wind. The line was evidently a thickish cord, for as he looked it was pulled in and the end disappeared into darkness. Shorthouse, trying to whistle to himself, peered over the edge of the balcony as if calculating the distance he might have to drop, and then calmly walked into the room again and closed the window behind him, leaving the latch so that the lightest touch would cause it to fly open. He relit the candle and drew a straight-back chair up to the table. Then he put coal on the fire and stirred it up into a royal blaze. He would willingly have folded the shutters over those staring windows at his back, but that was out of the question. It would have been to cut off his way of escape. Sleep for the time was at a disadvantage. His brain was full of blood and every nerve was tingling. He felt as if countless eyes were upon him and scores of stained hands were stretching out from the corners and crannies of the house to seize him. Crouching figures, figures of hideous people, stood everywhere about him, where shelter was, creeping forward out of the shadow when he was not looking and retreating swiftly, and silently when he turned his head. Wherever he looked, other eyes met his own, and though they melted away under his steady, confident gaze, he knew they would wax and drawing upon him the instant his glances weakened and his will wavered. There were no other sounds. He knew that in this well of the house, there was movement going on and preparation, and this knowledge, inasmuch as it came to him irresistibly and through other and more subtle channels than those of the senses, kept a sense of horror fresh in his blood and made him alert and awake. But no matter how great the dread in the heart, the power of sleep will eventually overcome it. Exhausted nature is irresistible, and as the minutes wore on and midnight passed, he realized that nature was vigorously asserting herself and sleep was creeping upon him from the extremities. To lessen the danger, he took out his pencil and began to draw the articles of furniture in the room. He worked into elaborate detail the cupboard, the mantelpiece, and the bed, and from this he passed on to the portraits. Being possessed of genuine skill, he found the occupation sufficiently absorbing. It kept the blood in his brain, and that kept him awake. The picture, moreover, now that he considered them for the first time, were exceedingly well painted. Owing to the dim light, he centered his attention upon the portraits beside the fireplace. On the right was a woman with a sweet, gentle face and a figure of great refinement. 
On the left was a full-sized figure of a big handsome man with a full beard and wearing a hunting costume of ancient date. From time to time he turned to the windows behind him, but the vision of the face was not repeated. More than once, too, he went to the door and listened, but the silence was so profound in the house that he gradually came to believe the plan of attack had been abandoned. Once he went out on the balcony, but the sleet stung his face, and he only had time to see that the shutters above were closed when he was obliged to seek the shelter of the room again. In this way, the hours passed. The fire died down and the room grew chilly. Shorthouse had made several sketches of the two heads and was beginning to feel overpoweringly weary. His feet and hands were cold and his yawns were prodigious. It seemed ages and ages since the steps had come to listen at his door and the face had watched him from the window. A feeling of safety had somehow come to him. In reality, he was exhausted. His one desire was to drop upon the soft white bed and yield himself up to sleep without any further struggle. He rose from his chair with a series of yawns that refused to be stifled and looked at his watch. It was close upon three in the morning. He made up his mind that he would lie down with his clothes on and get some sleep. It was safe enough. The door was locked on the inside and the window was fastened. Putting the bag on the table near his pillow, he blew out the candle and dropped with a sense of careless and delicious exhaustion upon the soft mattress. In five minutes he was sound asleep. There had scarcely been time for the dreams to come when he found himself lying sideways across the bed with wide open eyes staring into the darkness. Someone had touched him and he had writhed away in his sleep as from something unholy. The movement had awakened him. The room was simply black. No light came from the window and the fire had gone out as completely as if water had been poured upon it. He gazed into a sheet of impenetrable darkness that came close up to his face like a wall. His first thought was for the papers in his coat and his hand flew to the pocket. They were safe and the relief caused by the discovery left his mind instantly free for other reflections. And the realization that at once came to him with a touch of dismay was that during his sleep some definite change had been effected in the room. He felt this with that intuitive certainty which mounts to positive knowledge. The room was utterly still, but the corroboration that was speedily brought to him seemed at once to fill the darkness with a whispering, secret life that chilled his blood and made the sheet feel like ice against his cheek. This was it. There reached his ears, in which the blood was already buzzing with warning clamor, a dull murmur of something that rose indistinctly from the well of the house and became audible to him without passing through walls or doors. There seemed no solid surface between him lying on the bed and the landing, between the landing and the stairs, and between the stairs and the hall beyond. He knew that the door of the room was standing open. Therefore, it had been opened from the inside. Yet the window was fastened also on the inside. Hardly was this realized when the conspiring silence of the hour was broken by another and more definite sound. A step was coming along the passage. A certain bruise on the hip told Shorthouse, that the pistol in his pocket was ready for use, and he drew it out quickly and cocked it. Then he just had time to slip over the edge of the bed and crouch down on the floor, when the step halted on the threshold of the room. The bed was thus between him and the open door. The window was at his back. He waited in the darkness. What struck him as peculiar about the steps was that there seemed no particular desire to move stealthily.
there was no extreme caution they moved along in rather a slipshod way and sounded like soft slippers or feet in stockings there was something clumsy responsible almost reckless about the movement for a second the steps paused upon the threshold but only for a second almost immediately they came on into the room and as they passed from the wood to the carpet shorthouse noticed that they became wholly noiseless he waited in suspense not knowing whether the unseen walker was on the other side of the room or was close upon him presently he stood up and stretched out his left arm in front of him groping searching feeling in a circle and behind it he held the pistol cocked and pointed in his right hand as he rose a bone cracked in his knee his clothes rustled as if there were newspapers and his breath seemed loud enough to be heard all over the room but not a sound came to betray the position of the invisible intruder just when the tension was becoming unbearable a noise relieved the gripping silence it was wood knocking against wood and it came from the farther end of the room the steps had moved over to the fireplace a sliding sound almost immediately followed it and then silence closed again over everything like a pall. for another five minutes shorthouse waited and then the suspense became too much he could not stand that open door the candles were close beside him and he struck a match and lit them expecting in the sudden glare to receive at least a terrific blow but nothing happened and he saw at once that the room was entirely empty walking over with the pistol cocked he peered out into the darkness of the landing and then closed the door and turned the key then he searched the room bed cupboard table curtains everything that could have concealed the man but found no trace of the intruder the owner of the footsteps had disappeared like a ghost into the shadows of the night but for one fact he might have imagined that he had been dreaming the bag had vanished there was no more sleep for shorthouse that night his watch pointed to 4 a.m and there were still three hours before daylight he sat down at the table and continued his sketches with fixed determination he went on with his drawing and began a new outline of the man's head there was something in the expression that continually evaded him he had no success with it and this time it seemed to him that it was the eyes that brought about his discomfiture he held up his pencil before his face to measure the distance between the nose and the eyes and to his amazement he saw that a change had come over the features the eyes were no longer open the lids had closed for a second he stood in a sort of stupefied astonishment a push would have toppled him over then he sprang to his feet and held a candle close up to the picture the eyelids quivered the eyelashes trembled then right before his eyes the eyes opened and looked straight into his own two holes were cut in the panel and this pair of eyes human eyes just fitted them as by a curious effect of magic the strong fear that had governed him ever since his entry into the house disappeared in a second anger rushed into his heart and his chilled blood rose suddenly to boiling point putting the candle down he took two steps back into the room and then flung himself forward with all his strength against the painted panel instantly and before the crash came the eyes were withdrawn and two black spaces showed where they had been the old huntsman was eyeless but the panel cracked and split inwards like a sheet of thin cardboard in shorthouse pistol in hand thrust an arm through the jagged aperture and seizing a human leg dragged out into the room the servant marks words rushed in such a torrent to his lips that they choked him the old man white as chalk stood shaking before him 
the bright pistol barrel opposite his eyes when a volume of cold air rushed into the room and with it a sound of hurried steps. Shorthouse felt his arms knocked up before he had time to turn, and the same second Garvey, who had somehow managed to burst open the window, came between him and the trembling marks. His lips were parted, and his eyes rolled strangely in his distorted face. Don't shoot him! Shoot in the air, he shrieked. He seized marks by the shoulder. You damned hound, he roared, hissing in his face. So I've got you at last. That's where your vacuum is, is it? I know your vile hiding place at last. He shook him like a dog. I've been after him all night, he cried, turning to Shorthouse all night, I tell you, and I've got him at last. Garvey lifted his upper lip as he spoke and showed his teeth. They shone like the fangs of a wolf. The old man evidently saw them too, for he gave a horrid yell and struggled furiously. Before the eyes of the secretary, a mist seemed to rise. The hideous shadow again leaped into Garvey's face. He foresaw a dreadful battle, and covering the two men with his pistol, he retreated slowly to the door. Whether they were both mad or both criminal, he did not pause to inquire. The only thought present in his mind was that the sooner he made his escape, the better. Garvey was still shaking the old man when he reached the door and turned the key. But as he passed out onto the landing, both men stopped the struggling and turned to face him. Garvey's face, bestial loathsome, livid with anger, the old man's white and gray with fear and horror. Both turned towards him and joined in a wild, horrible yell that woke the echoes of the night. The next second, they were after him at full speed. Shorthouse slammed the door in their faces and was at the foot of the stairs, crouching in the shadow before they were out upon the landing. They tore shrieking down the stairs and passed them into the hall, and wholly unnoticed Shorthouse whipped up the stairs again, crossed the bedroom, and dropped from the balcony into the soft snow. As he ran down the drive, he heard behind him in the house the yells of the maniacs, and when he reached home several hours later, Mr. Sidebotham not only raised his salary, but also told him to buy a new hat and overcoat and sent in the bill to him. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.